Amen. Well, by the way, the preacher's birthday is Sunday. He'll be closer to your age. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be uh, 60 years old. My wife tells me, now you, you know you're, you're already in your 60th year, so on your birthday you're going to be in your 61st year. I said, thank you for the encouraging, <laughs> for the encouraging uh, news. So yeah, but uh, 60 years. And you, well, James chapter 4, 14, 4, 15 says that life, uh, don't, boast, uh, don't boast about tomorrow because it says we don't know what a day brings forth, right? And then it also says that life is like a what? A vapor, a mist. And so I think about it when you get up in the morning sometimes and, uh, and have some of that fog, that mist outside. And then the sun comes up and it begins to, to dry it off, burn it off. And, but it's here and then gone. And, and uh, you, don't, you don't think too much about that when you're younger, but you start getting a little bit older, you, you begin to realize how brief life really is, don't you? And it just, you, you get 60 or 70 or 80 and you look back and you think, my, where did the years go? And it goes, goes so fast, so fast. When we were raising our little kids, people little bit older would say, boy, enjoy them while they're young, while you have them. They're just going to be uh, grown and gone before you know it. And you can't appreciate that when they're, when you're in the throes of all of them. But uh, boy, it's so true uh, that uh, life passes very quickly. And so we're thankful that we have uh, eternal life uh, through Christ our Lord and have certainly that hope. So let's look at the book of James. Father, would you bless your word and uh, guide us, help us to be encouraged today by something that we see here. Uh, Lord, take that which is familiar and make it fresh for us, that uh, we would walk, Lord, in faith and be strong in faith. Lord, we certainly uh, need to be encouraged in our faith today with, with so many challenges in life. And so we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you're certain and reliable, and so we rest in you and rest in your word and your promises. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to try to get through James. So I was uh, going back and thinking about this, and um, there are, and thinking about the question, who wrote James? Well, we would say James wrote the book of James. It says that in the very beginning. Uh, he was the author. But which James? And so there are three prominent Jameses in the New Testament. And the first James was, um, well, they're actually of, the, of Jesus' 12 disciples. When he calls the 12, there are two James. And so the first James that we know about is he has a brother named John. And so James and John are the sons of Zebedee. Uh, they are, what do you remember they do by trade? They're fisher, fishermen. Well, probably not like this, but casting nets. And uh, so fishermen, uh, brothers, sons of Zebedee, get nicknamed um, uh, sons of Bo Bo Boragernes. Uh, they were um, believed to be quick-tempered guys, hot-tempered. You ever, you ever know anybody like that? Had a hot temper? Um, in Luke chapter 9, when the Samaritans reject Jesus, they, they ask, do you want us to pray down fire that, that God would destroy these, these, these uh, heathen Samaritans? They, they were quick-tempered, short-fused type guys, uh, tradesmen. So James is one of those original uh, disciples. And we're going to see he was one of the first to die. So as we just finished in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, you remember for political purposes, Herod arrests James, puts him in prison, and what does he do to him? You remember how James is martyred? How does he die? He beheaded him. And it garnered um, Herod so much popularity among the Jewish people, so politically, he thought, hmm, uh, I got some political mileage out of this. So then he decides to arrest Peter. And Peter's fate is pretty certain. Herod plans to behead Peter just like he does James. 
Um, but then the Lord intervenes, and we saw the story, sends this angel. So that's the first James in the New Testament, one of the disciples. And then there's another James that Jesus calls as one of his disciples, but he's known as James, son of Alphaeus, also one of the 12. And we know very little about James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there's a third James in the New Testament, and he is the half-brother of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph, after uh, the Holy Spirit conceives in her womb and she is, gives birth to Jesus, then Joseph and Mary have additional family. And, uh, and we know that there are four brothers that Jesus has, half-brothers. And in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says that none of his family members, none of his brothers believe that he's the Messiah. In fact, they all think that he's a little crazy, a little odd. And he was odd. He was different. I've been trying to stress that on, on Sunday mornings as we've been going through the, the book of Colossians. If, if you and I are serious about our faith and following Christ, we're going to be different. We're going to be peculiar. We're going to be odd. First Peter 2, 9. We're just... Um, and if you raise your kids to be godly and to really know the Lord, they're going to be different. They're going to be odd. One of the hindrances to us being useful to the Lord is when we don't want to be different. When we want to get along, be like everybody else and things like that, we lose our distinctiveness. We lose our effectiveness. So if you study the Bible, any, any person that was used of the Lord was different. Not just for the sake of being different, but because our commitment to the gospel, our values and perspectives and things we do and things we don't do uh, make us different from the world. And so his brothers don't believe in Jesus, but then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, it says that Jesus appears to James and the other apostles. So this James that Jesus appears to was not one of the original 12. So he wasn't James, the son of Alphaeus, and he wasn't James, the brother of John, James and the other disciples. And so it, it was his, his half-brother. So Jesus appears to his half-brother, James, uh, and his brother sees Christ risen, his brother risen, and so somehow through that, James, his half-brother, becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church. And so you see that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, where James, Jesus' half-brother, is one of the main leaders of the Jerusalem church. Paul addresses him and it's also this James, brother of Jesus, who is also has another brother uh, named Jude. And Jude, Jesus' half-brother, is the one who writes the book of Jude. And so uh, when you think about this James, this James that writes the book of James is not the James who is beheaded in Acts chapter 12. It is James... Um, sometimes he's referred to as James the devout. Well, this James was Jewish, and he was a devout Jew, a Jewish Christian. And so James is certainly written to other Christians that we'll look about. So, uh, so if you, someone would ask you which James wrote the book of James, we uh, almost unanimously believe that it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who later comes to faith in Christ, um, uh, later, a after Jesus has been raised from the dead. So how are we going to get through five chapters of the book of James in the next few minutes? Well, let me just touch on some highlights. The theme, uh, real main theme of this entire book is uh, about faith um, and specifically faith that comes from and through the word. So Romans 10.17 tells us that faith, our faith, comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so James is about faith, and especially that we not only be hearers of the Word, but what? Doers. So that's the theme. Faith, faith comes by hearing. Hearing the Word and doing the Word is a theme. In other words, put it into practice. Um, God, God does not call us just to be students of the word and just to learn the words for the sake of increasing biblical knowledge. And biblical knowledge is valuable, 
But unless it's expressed, unless our knowledge of God and knowledge of his word is expressed and makes a difference in the way that we live, it's really not any, has really any real, real um, kingdom value to it. So the word is to be obeyed. It's to be uh, put into practice. And so that's what James is going to emphasize to this book. Look with me at chapter one, verse one. James is writing to Jewish Christians, and he says, who have been dispersed, spread out. Um, to the 12 tribes, he says in verse 1, scattered abroad, scattered abroad. A, and so here you have James, a strict, devout Jewish Christian. He is in Jerusalem, and he's writing to fellow Jews, Jewish Christians, who have been spread, who have been dispersed out away from Jerusalem. So you and I understand that the gospel was established in Jerusalem. Um, and that's where everything gets established. And then the gospel we saw from the book of Acts spreads outward, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So let me, just to, as we think about who these Christians are that he's writing to, these Jewish Christians who have been dispersed, if you just kind of a little history here, in Acts chapter 2, just hit this very quickly, Grecian Jews, Grecian Jews, Gentile Jews, who Jews who had years and years prior been dispersed from the northern and southern kingdoms of Judah and Israel, living in other parts of the world, they become uh, Greek, Grecian Jews. They learn the language and the culture of the other places where they live in the world. And so any devout Jew, even if they were a, a Grecian Jew, on the certain times of the year, they were to make their pilgrimage, their trek back to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And that was a big deal. And so the city uh, during that time was flooded with these uh, traveling Jews, Grecian Jews who had come back into the city uh, to keep the law, to celebrate Passover, and who would also stay around for probably a couple of months, especially going into Pentecost. So 50 days after Passover was Pentecost. And so we looked at that. So the city is full of these Jews. And then in Acts chapter 2, uh, the prophecy uh, is fulfilled, Joel 2, that Peter preaches and the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, descends, and for the first time, um, believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and as the Spirit of God is poured out. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 7, that these Galilean Jews, or Jews who lived in Jerusalem, begin to speak in other tongues. Verse 8 says that these Grecian Jews who are there from other parts of the world who have a different language say, how is it that we are hearing these, these uh, Galilean Jews speak in our own language? And in verse chapter 2, verse 6, it says, and every person, every person, every Jewish believer from other parts hear the gospel in their own language. And so they question that. And then so Peter begins to preach and tells them what this is. This is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel that in these last days God would visit us and be with us. Jesus ascended back to the Father. Remember, remember he told the disciples, Terry, don't leave for my replacement is going to come and he will be with you, the paraclete, the spirit. And he comes and he'll be with you and then you're going to receive power to be witnesses. And so uh, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, the power of God begins to work, and 3,000, think about that, 3,000 people get saved in one day. Tell about revival. And uh, verse 21, 3,000 saved. Now, so why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, 70, 70 devout religious leaders are responsible for Jesus' death. Why did they want to get rid of Jesus? Why was Jesus crucified? Because he was disrupting their lives. He was a threat. The gospel threatened them, and so they want to eliminate Jesus. So think about that. They got rid of him. 
washed our hands of him. He's gone. Took care of that. That's all. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Then what happens? These 12 disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in one day, 3,000 people come to faith and believe in the Jesus that they just got rid of. And so what do you think the Sanhedrin response to that would be? Right? They're threatened again. They don't like it. In chapter 3 of Acts, Peter and John, on the way to the temple to pray, a lame man is healed. He'd been lame from his mother, from birth. And so when this great miracle occurs, the whole city begins to take note, draws more attention. People are flooding now in to hear Peter and James and uh, or Peter and John. And so these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin that got rid of Jesus, the gospel's beginning to spread. They call them in, they threaten them to knock it off. No, no more of this preaching, no more preaching the gospel. And so this, this intensity, political and spiritual intensity begins to set in from the Sanhedrin towards especially these disciples, the apostles, but also the gospel is spreading. Many people are believing in Jesus and it's a threat to them. So you see that occur in chapter 4. Um, and this, this is what lays the, the groundwork for the persecution. And there's continuing signs and miracles and healings and popularity. Uh, the, the gospel is beginning to spread. In chapter 5, the Bible says in ch- the, there's increasing church growth. More and more people are being saved. Uh, Peter and John then are rearrested. And this time before they're let go, they, they, what do they do to them this time? They beat them. So this, all of this is laying the groundwork, the basis for this intense persecution. Uh, the end of chapter 6, Stephen is preaching, and this Sanhedrin, they hear of it. So the gospel is spreading. People are coming to faith. They're being baptized. This, this, many more of these Jews are believing in this Jesus that we got rid of. And then Peter or, or uh, Stephen pre- preaches this fiery message and he goes back and he, if you read it, it's a long, long sermon and he goes back and he traces in that sermon how God had worked in the past of the nation of Israel. The Jew, it goes back all the way through their history. The exodus, the deliverance, crossing the Red Sea, manna in the wilderness and water from the rock and how God sent prophets and, and, he, and he's going on through this history, how God had worked and had done everything to lead them up to this final Messiah. And then he says to them, you stiff-necked, hard-hearted, ignorant men have crucified the very Messiah that God promised he would send. And it says they're cut to the heart. They don't repent. They're not converted. Instead, they rush in and they grab, stop their ears, grab Stephen, and stone him to death. And so this persecution that's coming, that's growing, it's swelling in the city of Jerusalem is all because of the gospel. The gospel is being spread and it's a threat. And so this persecution breaks. And there's, at the end of the chapter 7, there, the Bible says there's a young Pharisee uh, sharp, sharp young Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, who is a witness, who is attesting to Stephen's death, and it's Saul. And then you get into chapter 8, verse 1, where Saul begins, it says, and severe, from that time forth, severe persecution breaks out against Christians because they're trying to stop it. They don't want the gospel spreading anymore. It's a threat. They got rid of Jesus. And so this severe threatened uh, persecution comes out against the church. And it says that Saul is breathing out threats against Christians, bringing, the Bible says he's, he's, he's making havoc, havoc towards Christians. And as a result, uh, they begin to flee. I mean, literally flee for their lives, leaving the city of Jerusalem, uh, going into G- northern out of the city of Jerusalem, north into Judea, even as far as Samaria. They're preaching the gospel even as they go, that Christ is risen, that he's alive. But all of that is, is because of persecution. So think about this. If you, 
and your family today, if, if some kind of persecution arose against us, so somebody took over in, this, in where we live here and said, uh, we're going we're gonna to kill and persecute any person in this city who has any kind of allegiance to Christ. Right, so any of you who uh, have any allegiance to Christ, if you say you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be arrested, um, beaten, killed, and all of us have had to begin just to pack up what we have and take off, flee for our lives. Uh, that's what's happening back in the first century. And they didn't have savings accounts. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have any retirements. There was no government assistance. These people were poor, uh, mostly agricultural type people. They may have, had, may have some small businesses and they just, they just, that's the way they lived. And so they flee for their lives probably with just the shirts on their backs and maybe what maybe a couple of pack animals can carry and they flee. Well, what kind of financial position do you think that would have put them in? Pretty meager. And so they're being persecuted. They're in extreme poverty um, because of their commitment to the gospel. That's who James is writing to. Christians who have left their homes, Jewish believers, who had made some commitments to Christ, to the gospel, and they had fled from Jerusalem probably with very little financial reserve, food, uh, housing, just, and, and so they're suffering. They're being persecuted, and they're in poverty. And so that's, that's, does that help? Does that make sense? That's who he's writing to. And so he's writing to encourage them. Many of them, as well, as you could imagine, uh, because their lives had become so hard and so difficult, some of them may have been entertaining thoughts about abandoning the gospel. Abandon the faith. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's renounce Christ. Let's, let's go back and just, um, let's just blend in. Let's stop witnessing. Let's stop uh, sharing the gospel. Let's just go back and blend in and become like the world. And so James is writing to them about trials and suffering, not becoming like the world, to, to have to cling to their faith, to persevere, to be patient like a farmer. Uh, he, he's writing to encourage these believers who are having a hard time. I, I don't know if you, when you think back in your life, um, most people, uh, after when they when they come to faith in Christ, many of you like I did probably accepted Jesus when I was young, and then when I got to a certain age, um, kind of drifted drifted from the faith a little bit. Did some things probably we shouldn't have been, and then at some point you kind of come back. I don't I don't know if any of you had any kind of that spiritual journey like that. So it's it's not uncommon just for people, but especially if you're being persecuted. And it's a, it's a big issue. So, so he's writing to, to encourage them in the midst of persecution and poverty uh, not to abandon the faith, to stay in there. So, um, so let's, look at, let's look at what he says. Chapter 1, Linda, I'm just going to go through these in closing. They're suffering uh, and uh, going through a lot of trouble. Um, and so he's, he's writing to them. In verse 2 of chapter 1, and he says, listen, when you're suffering for the sake of Christ, count it all what? Joy. What does that mean? Count it all joy when you're going through tests, when you're going through trials. Does that mean that James is telling them to just all clap their hands and be happy and say, yay, we're suffering, we're suffering? No, that's not what he's telling you. It's, it's, not, it's not that kind of joy. This kind of joy is this, uh, this realization of, 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 of that God is working in us. And uh, as far as our maturity, and he talks about here uh, patience and, and this suffering produces patience and, and endurance and all that. So when we're, when we're going through some difficult times in our lives is when God is 
doing some of his best work in us. He's changing us. And I don't, I don't know of anyone who would say that uh, suffering and persecution and difficulty is fun. It's not fun when we're, when we're going through it. We don't, but, but we also have this reality, this knowing that God's at work in us. So whenever you are being stretched through some kind of test, some kind of difficulty, when you feel like you're being really stretched and having a difficult time, you can be assured that God's working in you. He's working in you. And, um, and I could I, I'll just tell you personally, I feel like God's still working in me. He continue to stretch me. <laughs> um, um, a year ago, moving to Mississippi is not what I had, what I thought was in the cards for me. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's been good, but it's stretched me. It's, it's taken me out of a comfortable place of living somewhere for as long as we did. And, and you know, you get familiar with your house and your comforts and your kids and neighbors and people, and there's a familiarity to it. And then, and then God disrupts all of that and says, no, this is what I have next for you. And so it's been, uh, I wouldn't say I've suffered, but it certainly has been a test. It's certainly been, it's stretched, stretched us. And so, and God's at work in those. So whatever it is, we're going, you go to think about some of the trials, the tests that you go through, financial things, right? You've been through those when you've been, all of you have had times like that where pretty lean, where you had more month than you had money. And uh, so you, God stretches you and you learn about faith and learn about depending on the Lord and other kind of relationship issues or losses that we go through. And we're, life, life can stretch us. God, and God's at work. And so James reminds them, count it all joy, knowing that God is working within you. And, and he tells them there, and as you go through this, pray. Pray with faith at the end of chapter one. Um, and when you pray, to pray with faith, to believe and that God, uh, Hebrews 11 says that it's impossible to please God apart from faith. And so when we pray, we need to pray with faith. And James says, if anybody prays without faith, they're like a, a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed and unstable, double-minded in all their ways, not, shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord when we are not praying in faith. And one of the things, 1 John 5, 14 says, and this is the confidence as we pray, that if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And so one of the things that bolsters confidence in bol uh, Hebrews 4, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. And one of the things that bolsters confidence and faith in prayer is the word. And we're praying in the word. I loved uh, that verse about uh, Sunday from Colossians 4, where Paul reminds the Colossians that Epaphras, he says, you remember who was one of you? He says he has a zeal for you and he's fervently praying for you that you would stand, stand, and he said, and, and, and made perfect in all of the will of God. I thought, man, when I, when I read that, I thought, boy, what a great way to pray, to pray for my brother that he would stand before the Lord. And maturity, perfection, it means to be, they would stand before God. He's being matured. God is perfecting his life. And he's standing before God, being matured in all of God's will for his life. That's not good. So it's an example of knowing the scripture so that when I pray, and so James is certainly calling them to pray in faith, all again in the context of suffering, uh, the theme not just to be a knower of the word, a hearer of the word, but also of a, of a doer. And he also says in this, uh, we're going to see that not to despair over financial inequities. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But look at, look at chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. There's a warning here, whether rich or poor, all of these earthly pursuits and conditions are passing away, whether rich or poor. And he says, they're all fading away, all the things of the world, stuff of the world, like flowers of the field and grasses of the field. The sun withers it all and it's all going to pass. And so he says, if you're rich, be humble. If you're poor, uh, glory in your standing with Christ. Live counterculturally. This world is not our home. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Endure testing, persevere, 
and you'll receive the crown of life. So um, finish strong, finish strong. I didn't, I didn't mention it, but at the end of chapter 4 of Colossians, at the very end, he says to Archippus, he says, mind your ministry, mind your ministry, stay faithful, finish strong. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you remember he said, the time of my departure is at near, day is at hand. He's referring that he knows he's about to die. And he says about himself, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've finished the course. Now there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, and not only to me, but for all who long for his appearing. In other words, he perseveres. And that's James' message to these Christians. Persevere. Endure, stay with it. Don't abandon your faith. He reminds them that the testing of your faith uh, is one of the ways that God works to strengthen us and to make us more useful to him. And he also tells them at the end of chapter one, um, God may test you, but God will never tempt you. See that? Look at verses 13 through 15 of James. Does God tempt us? No, God will test us. God already knows how we're going to respond to the tests, but the testing is for our purpose, to strengthen us, to teach us to walk with the Lord, to teach us about his faithfulness, how dependable he is. And so he, he, we're tested to grow in the Lord, but God never tempts us. Um, he says, when, because temptation uh, is, that word, it means to lead us to sin. And God is never going to tempt us to sin. In fact, he says, if you see there for chapter one, he says, let not any one of you, he's writing Christians, let not any of you say when you're tempted that you're tempted by God, right? But he says, our temptation comes from where? You're each one of us tempted by our own desires and lusts and sinful flesh. That's where the temptations come. So God tests, he tests us to strengthen us, ultimately to bless us, make us more useful to him and bring him glory, but God doesn't tempt us to sin, so let no one say they're tempted by God. Uh, and then remember at the end of this chapter, verse 16, every good and perfect gift comes from, the, from above. The Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Aren't you glad that God, our God doesn't change, that he's faithful every day, good every day, and that every how many of you have learned that? You just, you just realize now every good thing in my life is, is a blessing from the Lord. Every good gift is from him, and we're thankful. So that's the first chapter. And uh, also, uh, just so many great verses. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 19. How many of you know this? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Isn't that a great verse? Just practical, practical insight. Quick to hear, especially what? Hear the word. I want to be quick to hear the word. Right? Faith comes by hearing. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear the spirit. And so God speaks. So quick to hear, slow to what? Speak and slow to be angry. Is anger a sin? No. In fact, Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, be angry, but sin not. Jesus became angry. It was a controlled anger. There's a, there's a good, there's some things that ought to make us angry and produce a righteous anger in us that, that God uses to compel us uh, to, to do something. And so uh, if I was a little kid going to school as a Christian and I saw somebody uh, picking on somebody in school, a righteous anger would cause me to get involved and say you and take a stand to, to defend that poor boy or that poor girl that was being ridiculed and made fun of and being hurt. So that's an example. Righteous anger that causes us to intervene and to, to you know to do some things. And so that'd be an example as a kid. Other examples for us as adults, a righteous anger when we uh, see somebody doing something or something happens uh, uh, where we, we become angry about it. Um, my daughter lives in Austin, Texas, and back a week or so ago when the power went out, originally they were told there was so much electricity produced, and so they were going to ration all the electricity out. So everybody in the city of Austin would get 
electricity for certain periods of the day. Well, guess what happened? Who do you think had all of their electricity off, cut off? It wasn't rationed, it was cut off. And so all the wealthy neighborhoods kept all of their electricity. And all the areas where these high-tech company businesses, they kept all their energy. They shut all the electric grid off in the poor parts of Austin. And my, that's where my daughter lives. So there's a rent's cheaper there. And so all the people who were in the most poor are the people who lost their electricity. And then eventually lost their water. Well, that should cause Christians to be angry. And to say, you know what? We need to speak out about this. There needs to be. So that, you see what I'm saying? That would be an example of we're not just to uh, care about justice. The Bible says that we are to pursue justice. Pursue justice. That's unjust. That's unjust. There's some corrupt uh, politicians or money people who are making those decisions. And so it's, it's wrong. So we, that would be an example. Being salt, being light. Speaking so righteous anger. And then also slow to speak. Uh, have you heard this? That God gave us two ears and what? One mouth. And so we would be better off if we'd spent twice as much time doing what? Listening and a lot less time talking. More quick to hear and less, to, uh, less of a desire to be heard. Uh, so uh, just a couple things there. So chapter 1, 22 through 25, be doers, not hearers only. And he says in verse 21, let the word of God be implanted in you. Let it be implanted. Let, let God's word take root in you. Be rooted. That's what I've been talking about. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. Be rooted and grounded in the gospel. Let the gospel take root in you. Where it's deep. It's deep. And it, you abide in Christ and you're living for him. So rooted and grounded in. And let the word of God play. And, he, and I love that illustration that he uses in um, in in uh, the first chapter of James, that God's word is like a mirror, like a mirror. Um, I'm looking around here today, most of you ladies, I know what you did this morning, every one of you. I know what every one of you ladies did, probably more than the men, probably the men too. Uh, before you left your house, before you came here, you spent some time in front of the mirror. How many of you? Amen? You spent a little time in front of the mirror. What, what were you doing? You're getting fixed up. So you look in the mirror and you see, well, that, you know, you've been sleeping all night and your hair's all lopsided and all sticking up, right? And, uh, and you just, you know, maybe no make, you just, you know, and, it, and so you get in front of that mirror and you, you, you look and you say, hmm, and so you fix it. <laughs> you make adjustments, you make repairs uh, in the mirror because the mirror you see a reflection of your image and so you, you, you make the repair work. You make the adjustments. Well, think about this. The Bible says that God's word is like a mirror. And when we look into the word of God, we see a reflection. We see what God sees. And then our desire is then to make adjustments according to what God reveals to us in the mirror. And so when you and I spend time in the word, yeah, we're, we're always listening right? Psalmist, Psalm 139, Lord, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. So God, if there's, God, if there's something in my life today, an attitude um, that's displeasing to you, God, help me to, to adjust it. God, would you adjust that in me? And so uh, before I leave the house, before I go out, right, there's adjustments that, that need to be made. And so um, and, and the Bible says, uh, James says, a, a Christian who is wise, when they see these reflections and these adjustments to be made, they don't forget what they are, right? So James, everyone, so I'm, uh, I'm taking too long on here. Um, chapter one, some practical things, controlling the tongue. Control your tongue, control your words. Be slow to speak. Um, Colossians 4, 6, Paul prayed that those Colossians, that their speech, their words would be seasoned with salt, seasoned in the gospel so that our words would be used by God to minister to other people and to bless people by, we, by the things that we say. Um, so 
Our words so important. Then he talks about in, at the end of chapter one, verse twenty-seven. He defines pure, pure religion. Um, how many of you like pure maple syrup? You like the pure stuff over the man-made stuff? Tastes different, doesn't it? Pure, undefiled, um, pure, uh, valuable, the very best. It's pure, and the very best Christianity. The purest, the most valuable Christianity, he says, is what? When we care for people. That's the best. And he specifically lists for the orphan and for the widow. The idea is for those who are in need, Christianity is, is not any more pure. The purest form of it is when we care for those people in need and serve those who, who need uh, those. So... Um, and let me close here. Five more lessons from the, but that, that just, the first chapter of James is just rich. It's just that, um, that whole chapter. You could just study it and study it and mine it and mine it. And you just, you never, you never exhaust it. It's just so good. James chapter, so practical. But let me close with a couple of things. Five more lessons from the book of James. First is a sin of partiality. He warns about this. Do not serve people based upon outward appearances. Do you remember when the text there, he says, so if you go to church and there's a guy who comes into church and he's got nice gold jewelry on, he's got the nice three-piece suit on, he looks professional, looks like a businessman, and then you got another guy who comes in and he might be a little scruffy, a little dirty, got shabby clothes on, looks poor. What's James say? This is strong. He said it's evil. Didn't say it's sin. He says it's evil if we treat one guy better than the other. How do you, how do you think we do in that regard as a church? You think we look on people externally and we put more value, we judge them based on outward appearances and we put more value on people based upon that kind of thing? That's, that's, a, that's a challenging couple of verses there. Preferential treatment, showing partiality, showing favoritism to one person over the other, uh, James says, is evil. And so the uh, sin of partiality. And he goes on in that second chapter and talks about not to dishonor the poor. Do not dishonor the poor. Uh, God has a high, you know, God loves everybody, but if you... you, you you go through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and you look at the foreigner, which would be the immigrant, the, the widow, the widower, the orphan, all right, the poor, uh, the needy. Um, God has always made provision for them in his word. And, and, and so how we, how we treat people like that is important to the Lord. Um, it's a very, very important uh, that we, we never dishonor people and, and so he says it's evil. Um, cha- uh, next thing, chapter 2, he talks about faith without works being dead. Faith without works is dead. So faith without expression, faith without being demonstrated is dead. So he says if someone says, I have faith, but there's no expression if they never demonstrate their faith. And in the context here, he's talking about caring for people. And, and if there's, so if there's never any way where we demonstrate our faith, he says it's kind of dead, dead faith. So it needs to be expression as we, as we care for people. Uh, justified by faith only, only faith. So works doesn't, don't, don't save us. We're not saved by our works. But our works demonstrate or give expression to our faith. And then he talk, just provides some great admonitions and exhortations in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, I don't really understand this. Chapter 3, verse 1, but there's a warning to teachers. What's the warning? Let not many of you be teachers because those who teach are going to go through a stricter judgment. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds serious to me, <laughs> right? A stricter judgment. And so, but so I think the idea is what? The idea is to, God takes the ministry of his word serious. It's serious. Uh, 
Uh, Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not to be ashamed, but one who rightly cuts it, rightly divides, rightly handles the word of truth. And James says a warning, uh, how that word is handled, how it's taught, how it's preached is... Uh, um, and Paul, think about what Paul said to the Galatians. If anyone distorts the word, preaches another gospel, let them be damned, let them be accursed, let them be anathema is what he says. So you get this idea of how God cares about his word. Uh, strict judgment on those who minister the word. And practically that means, I just, we had a, Sunday school teachers meeting here a couple weeks ago, Jason, for kids and for teenagers and stuff. If somebody volunteers to teach little kids, they ought to prepare that lesson. They don't teach the word, teach the word, handle it well with little kids, with teenagers, with adults, where, you, where you're prepared. Some of you have taught before, right? And and uh, have, have, you ever taught a, have you ever taught a lesson and you knew going in you weren't prepared the way you needed to be? Anybody ever done that? And what, what's, it's, it's not good, is it? It's, it's kind of a miserable feeling when you, when you don't have confidence from your preparation that you go in and you don't really feel like you have a word from the Lord. It's, it's not good. <laughs> It's just, it's really, you know, and I've, there have been Sundays where my preparation has been better than other prep, other weeks and some weeks when it's not been too good. It's just a, it's, it's not good. You know, where you feel like you just blew it. Any of you ever had, had that experience? Anybody who's taught at any, at any length of time, I'll guarantee you've had those kind of Sundays where you went home and you said, God, I just, man, I just missed it today. I just struggled today. It didn't just seem like anybody was listening. I just didn't feel I was... God, you're working through me, you know? Uh, and so it's just one of those kind of things. So being careful with teaching. Uh, chapter three, be careful with the tongue. Be careful with the tongue. Uh, I was a little boy. I remember in church, and I remember this, the guy, the lesson was on James 3 about the tongue. And he said, he had all of us as little kids, he says, tell me the most powerful thing you know of. What's the most powerful thing you know? And so we said, well, big jet engines are powerful and, and uh, big bulldozers, earth movers, they're powerful. And so we as kids, we were all rattling off these things that we knew that were powerful. And guess what? He came back. He brought it to James threat, chapter 3 and he said, it's the tongue. The tongue is powerful. And James talks here through, through words through the tongue. You can, it can set a whole forest on fire, the tongue power of words. Timely words are powerful. Untimely, ill-spoken words are powerful. How many of you have ever said something to somebody and you knew you hurt them? You crushed them, right? From things that you said to them and you knew you hurt them. I've done that to Mindy before, you know, um, and said things I shouldn't have said. And, you know, I think about that passage in First Peter 3 where it says, wives, uh, husbands love your wives being bestowing honor on her as the weaker vessel well it doesn't mean she's weaker intellectually or value or anything like that but I think he's referring to emotions and I always think about husbands are you know the, the husband is like a a, a a glass like some pewter metal glass and she's like this little fine china and and uh, and, and you could you can just shatter that through your words you know, I've, I've hurt Mindy before over things that I said and uh, that I shouldn't have said. Just, you know, just so words, our words have great power, you know, can hurt people or bless people. So James talks about power of the word and then, and then it just uh, controlling the tongue. Uh, uh, be careful with wealth and pride in chapter four. Uh, wealth will have a cause us a, to have a tendency to depend on ourselves instead of God. So be careful with that. Um, becoming friends of the world, he says. He talks about these Jewish Christians who might be committing spiritual adultery. Uh, Christians who have a mistress. They have a mistress, and the mistress is the world. And they're unfaithful to the groom because they've gotten involved with a mistress, the world, 
And James rebukes that. He said, do not be, commit, talked about the rebukes verse, committing spiritual adultery to the word. Now I love what he says, but in the midst of that, what does God do? He just gives more grace, more grace, more grace. But trying to bring us to repentance. Um, and so strong warning there. And then the last thing, I'll end with this. Um, be patient in suffering. James says to these Jewish Christians who are suffering, be patient in suffering. And he, he, he calls them, think about a farmer. A farmer who plants seed in the ground and then they have that farmer has to learn to do what? Wait. To be patient. For that seed to, to, to begin to sprout and to grow. And he says, wait on the Lord. Be patient when you're going through these trials and these difficult times and, and just warns the you know that uh, life is short; it's like a vapor, and then, uh, and so, so I'll stop there. Uh, not too bad. Five chapters there, just kind of flying through it. it, it I think Don said this beginning. It's just that the book of James has just so much practical instruction to it, doesn't it? Just so much there. Uh, also, d- did you know that James is the only book in the New Testament that never mentions Jesus? Did you know that? And when the, uh, when the early church was canonizing the New Testament, it almost got left out. You know, they were canonizing, putting together the New Testament, and the book of James almost didn't make it in because of that very purpose. It never mentions, never mentions the Jesus. And not, not, and not a real strong presentation of the gospel in the book of James, but just rich, uh, rich of, of spiritual instruction for Christians, for believers. So, uh, all right, let me pray with you. Lord, thank you for your word today. Um, just so much there. And we just want to be faithful. And we pray that we would allow your word to take more and more control of us, to have a, just to be implanted in our souls, Lord, for your glory. That we want to be obedient to you and faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.